Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 82, and it's a continuation of what we started in episode 81, a listening to the interview of John Stringer, the official autopsy photographer. You know, according to Floyd Reby, on the night of the autopsy, Reby used his own personal Canon 35mm camera. He claims he took 20 exposures using it, and he also claims that he exposed two 12-packs of 4x5 film using a Speed Graflex camera. Stringer confirmed that Reby had access to a Speed Graflex camera at Bethesda. But here's the thing. How could Stringer not remember this? How could Stringer sit there and claim that Reby took no photographs of the president's body that night? Explicitly state under oath that he believes that Reby's recollection of this set of facts, that Reby took those photographs that night of the president's body, that these assertions by Reby are just plain incorrect. Well, the truth is that someone is lying here, either Reby or Stringer, but probably not both. I'm sorry. These are just not things you forget in life. Maybe you forget who was taking pictures at a family event. Maybe you forget who had the camera on vacation. Maybe all of that. But here is the thing. You just don't forget this kind of stuff. Not when the both of you are photographers at the autopsy of the President of the United States? No way. Now, Reby claims that he took another 24 pictures using the 4x5 speed Graflex. So Reby himself claims that he took 44 pictures in total. Was this to be added to the official tally that John Stringer himself takes credit for? Or is it simply part of the existing total picture count? That is an important question to answer. The only problem here is that Stringer thinks that he took all the autopsy pictures himself. If that is true, if all photographs in the official tally were taken by Stringer himself, if that is true, and that official tally is currently 53 pictures, well, then some pictures are missing. When you add Reby's 44 additional photographs that he claims he took, if they are truly incremental to the official tally, you should have an adjusted official total of 97 pictures. Now, perhaps you subtract the roll of film that the Secret Service decided to expose and destroy from the 120 or 35 millimeter camera as it may. For this purpose, we'll assume it's the entire roll of 35 millimeter film that Reby states was a roll of 20 exposures. Remember, Stringer contends that the only camera Reby had was the 120 format. But regardless of whether it was the 35mm or the 120 format camera and film, it seems reasonable to assume, based on the testimony, that this is the role of film in question that was confiscated and exposed, and then rendered useless. The math I just went through would put the updated tally back to a number that just includes the additional pictures that Reby took that were salvageable. So, there should be at least... 24 more pictures that were taken with the other 4x5 camera that night, and those pictures are seemingly unaccounted for. Not in the official tally. 
Okay, let's say that is true. Unless Stringer was playing wrong and some of the pictures taken in the official inventory that night, that inventory is still to this day sitting there at the National Archives. Well, maybe some of them were taken by Rebe with the Speed Graflex. I won't yet get into the discussion on the type of film used. But the bottom line is that if Rebe did take pictures separately that night, then there are likely many pictures, many, many pictures missing from the official inventory. Oh, and the detail about what camera Rebe actually used? That's still bugging me too. Throughout Stringer's testimony, he is adamant that Rebe took no pictures other than at the start when Rebe apparently that is, based on Stringer's testimony, pulled out a 120-format camera, not a 35-millimeter format camera, as Reby states, and that as soon as he started taking pictures, the film in the 120-format camera was confiscated by Secret Service agents. And there was a denial by Stringer that Reby ever took pictures of the body. And certainly, in Stringer's view, there was no use by Reby of a 4x5 camera and no use of a 35mm camera by Reby. By the way, a 120 format camera is one that has film that's about 60mm wide. It's a larger negative than a 35mm camera, almost twice as large as a 35mm. The technology contained in that type of camera, along with modern lenses, generally allows for a similar quality of photographs, even when using film that is almost half the physical size of a 120 format. Like everything we touch today, the 35mm cameras were just coming into vogue during that era, and they were smaller and more versatile in some ways than the old-time counterparts, such as the cameras that used 120 film. Even Stringer referred to the 124 Mac camera as an antique. Today's episode is a continuation of sworn testimony at the ARRB by John Stringer, who was the official autopsy photographer. And it's good stuff. First, let me reiterate something that you have heard ad nauseum in this autopsy series, and you will continue to hear it until we are done. Every interviewer asks whether the wound to the head damaged the occipital area of the skull. That is, the lower rear area of the skull. The reasons for this are rather simple. A large wound in the lower portion of the rear of the head would almost certainly indicate a shot from somewhere in the front and above, with the bullet entering higher up in the front of the head and then traveling at a downward angle as it traversed the president's head and then exited well, blew out the lower rear of his head, actually. That was logical and intuitive. A small entrance wound in the front and a large exit wound in the back. As I said, this scenario would have likely produced a blowout in the back of the head. And indeed, many believe that's exactly what it did. And the force of the kill shot blew brain matter and skull tissue all over the presidential limousine behind the president and to his left as well and a portion of the skull landed on the ground, presumably behind where the limousine would have been. That included the Harper fragment, and we'll tell that story soon as well. On the other side of this discussion were folks who were Warren Commission disciples and knew that evidence supporting a headshot that came from the rear would have to be strengthened in order to strengthen that theory that the shots came all from the rear window at the school book depository. 
The House Select Committee did just that as they studied, debated, and finally voted on the topic during their 1978 hearings and eventually placed the wound of entry related to the headshot at a much higher position on the skull. Similar to conclusions of the Clark panel. These are all oversimplifications, of course, of the ballistics involved, but in the end, that is basically the case. And their change all but sealed the idea related to the fatal headshot. And I am repeating the discussion here about the possible damage being primarily in the occipital area in order to give you context when you hear it said by the participants in these depositions. When we talk occipital, we're talking the lower part of the rear of the head. Well, I've already given you a sneak preview of some of what is in this episode, but let me summarize a bit more for you. A few more Cliff's notes, if you will, so you'll have them once we pivot to the audio testimony. You know, one of Stringer's opening remarks is one of the most telling. When asked if any of the pathologists prevented a picture from being taken that night at the autopsy, well, after a long pause, he said, I don't know how much they wanted to show. This remark in its delivery on tape may have been perfectly innocent. A common man staring at the most powerful man in the world, newly cut down and destroyed. What a feeling he must have had viewing him in this most vulnerable poise. But it emphasized the fact that there were hesitations about taking pictures, no doubt about fully documenting this gruesome crime in real life photos. Understandable to a degree, I think. But on the other hand, once you decide to take pictures at the autopsy, any pictures, haven't you already made that decision? Well, as I mentioned at the outset, you get to hear the controversy between Reby's recollection and Stringer's. And this is the first time that we get to listen to the effects of David Lifton's truth serum. I call it truth serum because the interrogators played the original Lifton interview of Reby so that Stringer could hear it. Stringer was also shown a transcript of those lift and interview tapes with Reby, and you'll hear Reby clearly say on the videotape that there was nothing in the occipital region in the back of the president's head. It was just a big hole. Maybe the real truth serum, though, was listening to a lift and tape with his own previous statements on it, where Stringer could hear himself say that the wound was in the occipital area. More on that in a moment. Stringer recognized Lifton on the tape, and Stringer heard his assertion that the head one was in the occipital region. Stringer was asked if he agreed with what Reby said about the head one being in the occipital region, and he said no. He strongly disagreed with what Reby said. Reby would assert to Lifton on videotape that he took shots of that gaping hole in the occipital region of the president's head. So where are they? After watching the videotape of Reby, Stringer was also asked, point blank, did Reby take pictures of the president's body during the autopsy? And Stringer flatly answered, no. Reby did not. It was a clear and unequivocal answer. No, he did not. Jeremy Gunn was the ARRB attorney who was conducting Stringer's interview, and he would, again, ask Stringer if Reby had a 35mm camera at the autopsy. The answer was again, no. Now, once again, as I said earlier, just like the story of the x-rays, these two men were the two men among the universe of men attending an event of the century, and each of them telling very simple, 
but diametrically opposed stories. About a very simple thing, by the way. One man says he had two cameras and took pictures at the autopsy with them. And the other says that the man did not have either of those two cameras and that he took no photographs of the president. One of these assertions by one of these men has to be false, and one of these men has to be lying. And maybe under oath, if it's Stringer, we haven't heard Reby's sworn testimony yet. Why all the lies, I thought, as I sat and listened to this tape of Stringer's testimony and Reby's interview with Lifton being replayed? At some moment in the middle of listening to this, I just decided I had had enough that day with the lies. I know this was a traumatic experience and frightening experience for both of them, but you know, there are so many lies, so many of them in the story of the JFK assassination. Who is telling the truth here, I wondered. Even as my disgust began to build somewhat for the both of them, I would think to myself, was Reby lying really just to find fame, or was it Stringer that was lying here, just lying to avoid harm? I guess the former is worse in a sense, but it's not clear who is committing the crime. So no conclusion yet. But really, which was worse? The silly aspirations caused by one man's search for his 15 minutes of fame or being so afraid that you can't actually tell the truth? Was Stringer so afraid that he felt the need to run away from the truth? For one thing, you would think being in the armed forces would give you something more besides just loyalty and that one thing being courage. But I guess he was just afraid to deviate, and he was probably given an order by a superior. And he himself said that they put the fear of God in all of them. Look, he was a photographer, not a Navy SEAL. I don't know which of those stories is true, but the truth is that one of them was likely to be lying. I don't often talk about these things in this way and out loud in the podcast, But these exchanges are particularly troubling to me. They do confirm that there is more to the story, and really, at the same time, these lies do nothing to solve the crime. That may be the real tragedy in all of this, and it's such a signature theme of the JFK assassination. I guess it's that way in any murder, but here in the JFK story, it's present in spades. And today, it's just plain making me mad as a hornet. The Reby and Lifton exchange that you hear played in this episode addresses perhaps the most infamous picture taken at the autopsy. It's a photograph of the rear view of the head that shows the hair and skin of the president completely intact. Almost pristine, really, and Reby confirms that he saw nothing of the sort and that there was a great big gaping hole there. A big hole that was nowhere to be seen in that photo. And now that photo sits in the National Archives as an official autopsy photo. There's been much speculation that somehow the skin could be pulled up and down by retracting the scalp, covering the gaping hole. That seems almost incredulous given the extent of the damage that we know existed. Yet it has been discussed as a possibility, and some have said that was the case, and they saw it. Reby is here today to tell you flat out that just wasn't the case. There was a hole there. Reby states on the Lifton tape that he doesn't believe this infamous photo to be an authentic picture. Reby's words are clear. He says it's not an authentic photograph. 
More of the interview is redundant. Stringer continues to deny, again, that Reby took any pictures of the body and continues to deny that there ever was a 35-millimeter camera present at the autopsy. Oh, one more Reby quote about that infamous picture of the rear of the president's head. He would finish up his discussion on that one by saying, I remember what I saw, and this is not what I saw. Asked whether his memory could be faulty, perhaps fading as a result of the years gone by, he said something that is very logical and intuitive to me. He went on to tell Lifton that this was such a shock at the time to see this, that it was embedded in his mind, and that there wasn't much chance that he was getting it wrong after all these years. Reby said he would stake his reputation and his life on it. That is, that there was a very large hole in the back of the president's head in the occipital region. Even after listening to this section of the Lifton Reby videotape, Stringer would continue to disagree with Reby's observations. Maybe even more fantastic is the fact that Stringer would deny that he himself had ever told Lifton that the wound was in the occipital region of the head. He would make that statement under oath to Jeremy Gunn, even after listening to himself on the tape with Lifton, say those words. He literally refused to acknowledge that he had said that in those words on that tape, even after listening to it. Right now, I'm just shaking my head because Stringer was under oath when he made such an outrageous statement, and the best that he could do after realizing what an obvious lie he had just promulgated, even after listening to his own words plain as day on that tape, stating he still did not believe that he had said that. As if someone had recreated his voice, perhaps? I don't know what he was thinking. It was such a bold-faced, unbelievable lie, he just couldn't believe that he was on tape, on record that the wound was in the occipital region. And after a moment of pause, the best he could do was to retreat to a lesser position, saying that if he did say it at that time, he just didn't know why he would say it. Now, none of that makes any sense, of course. You know, I played this portion of the audio recording maybe 20 times if I played it once and just continued to ask why would Stringer at this advanced stage in his own life, when men and women were beginning to tell the truth about the JFK assassination, why would he have told the most dangerous of things in those early years? And now, in the later years, deny his earlier statements so long after the incident itself. Was he a more courageous guy in the beginning and then someone got to him later on? Was he, like some other witnesses, still wondering what forces might be at work or what ramifications that this whole thing might still have for the safety of his family if he told the truth? But hadn't he already told the truth years ago, privately to Lifton? Weren't those statements made in the earlier years true, or were they false then? But if so, why? He was not a seeker of fame or fortune related to this topic. That is for sure. Another thing is for sure, there was probably more risk then, at least more risk then during the period of his ARRB deposition. So what is the correct answer? Why the switch in a seemingly odd direction in his later years? It seems like such an Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass twist of fate. Maybe he was lying in the beginning and now at the ARRB he was telling the truth. Wouldn't that be something? But honestly, I doubt that to be the case. Well, who knows? I'll leave it to you all to figure this one out. I'm hungry already and definitely in need of a sandwich. 
Jeez. This story of the JFK assassination really is a case where fact is stranger than fiction. I know this last little bit here at the end is, is all speculation on my part, but I'm just saying. Well, now it's time for us to listen to the rest of episode 82 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. In terms of standard autopsy procedure, would it have been standard procedure to take a close-up photograph of any wound that was identified as a possible entry wound? Uh, yes, but here again, uh, whatever they told us to take, I took. Do, do you recall during the autopsy believing that a photograph should be taken, but one was not asked for you to take? I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much they wanted to show, and, but uh, they they told us what to take. And we took it. When you say they, who are you referring to? Uh, Doctor Humes was the primarily. Uh, Doctor Boswell and Doctor Fink. Did you have the sense at some point that Doctor Humes did not want you to take a photograph of the back of the head with the scalp reflected? No. Mr. Schreiner, I'd like to show you some videotape uh, of an interview between Mr. Lifton and Floyd Reeby. Uh, and I can say to you that uh, yesterday I spoke with Mr. Reeby by telephone about this interview, although I did not discuss any very specific portion of the interview. I asked him generally whether the statements in the interview were correct the best of his understanding, and he said yes, they were, and that he was prepared to testify to that under oath. So I'd like to mm -hmm. show you some of those. Because of the way that it's located on the videotape, we're going to show you one of the last portions of the videotape, then return and show you some earlier portions. I have, once again, a transcript of the videotape, if that would help you uh, hear it, although this is much clearer than the, the telephone conversation that was recorded. Mr. Stringer, were you able to see the videotape? Yes. Did you see this, the circle that Mr. Reeby drew on the uh, photograph of the back of the head? Uh, based upon your experience in anatomy, would it be fair to say that the circle that he was drawing on the photograph of the head was principally in the occipital uh, region of, of the head? Okay. Can we go back to... Page 11, off the record. And Mr. Stringer, I'm about to show you part of a videotape that is recorded on transcript between pages 11 and 13. It starts on the videotape timer at 11 colon 30. Hold up for just one moment. Uh, this is that's not. Which one? The document I'm going to show you is a transcript of the videotape, the authenticity of which has not been uh, independently verified. The portion that we're going to be turning to is page 
11, and we'll be starting at portion. We'll actually start a little bit before, but here's where we're going to be particularly okay. trying to pay attention. Okay, if we can go videotape. of sitting the president correspond with your own recollection? They did. Sitting up, yes. Mr. Reedy, as I'm sure you heard, referred to the wound being in the occipital region. Did you, did you hear that? Does that correspond with your own recollection? No, it does not. Okay. Okay, go ahead. This area on the back of the head. Yes. Thank you. 
Mr. Stringer, were you able to hear the, the words of Mr. Reby in his yeah. Uh To the best of your recollection, did Mr. Reby take any photographs of the President's body? Did no, he did not. Did Mr. Reby, to the best of your recollection, have a 35 millimeter camera? No, he did not. One camera in the autopsy. Four by five. Uh, previously, you mentioned that there uh, was a camera that took 120, that used 120 film on the back. Yes, uh, there was an adapter. Okay, so there was not a, a medium format camera. It was an adapter for a four by That's five camera. The only other medium was uh, the one that he carried in, in which the film was destroyed. Okay, I'm, I'm interested in that camera that the film was destroyed on. What camera was that that had been taken in? The just 135. I, I, I mean the uh, the 120. Okay, and that was the one that you had thought was likely to be a Mamiya Flex. Is that right? No, it was not a Mamiya Flex. So what kind of uh, 120? It was a cheap little camera that we had around the lab. Okay. And so if Mr. Reby were to have taken any photographs of the body, it would have been with that cheap medium format camera? Yeah, but there wasn't any film. Okay. They took the film. Okay. Now can we go to page 21, 2135? There's something here. I'm sorry, could we go back just a little bit before? Just very modest. Yeah. The occipital region here. And when did you see this? Nothing. There was nothing there. But there's something here in the picture. Right. That's not a picture of that. How come, how come this is the National Archive? How come this is here? I don't have any idea. Okay. Mr. Stringer, were you able to hear Mr. Reedy yes, in that was. Uh -huh. videotape? And, and, uh, and he's seen photographs. Were taken with the 4 by 5 Not with any other camera. No, with 4 by 5 Did you take any pictures at all with 120 roll? Not 120, I did with 35. With 35? Right. The only 120 uh, camera we had at the school, I was not that good with it. It was an old Vermeer flex. Yeah. And I didn't like that camera really that much at all, so I used uh, a Canon 35 millimeter. So you didn't take any pictures at all with the one? Not with the 120, no. Your pictures of the body were taken with a 35 millimeter? Did you take any pictures of the body with a 35 millimeter? Uh, some, yeah. More or less general overviews. I had uh, a small, small roll, uh, 20 exposures, or, yeah, 20 exposures. Do you remember the incident of taking pictures inside the chest? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you remember finding a bruise inside the chest and they opened them up? Do you remember why they did it? Yeah. Did they do it? You reviewed it and they didn't want right. it. Did they ask you to take any pictures internal? No. Uh, pictures internal would have had been done with a tripod, I'm sure. Yeah. 
having exposed two 12-packs. Does that refresh any recollection you have? Are you, are you fairly confident that Mr. Reby is incorrect about the 12-packs? I don't packs? remember him taking any pictures at all. Uh, the photo lab did have a, a speed graphic camera. Yes. So, so that is something that Mr. Reby would have had access to. Okay, he had one that was assigned to him as a student, correct? Okay, and the 12-pack would refer to black and white pack. negatives. And the 35 the millimeter, he said, was a cannon. I don't know where that came from. The transcript will speak for itself. I think that he said that was his personal camera earlier. Mr. Ramey referred to his impression that one of the agents in the room was attempting to keep track of photographs. Does that correspond to your own recollection? Well, he was uh, picking them up as they were exposed. Do you have any recollection other than picking up the, the holders after the film was exposed of anyone attempting to keep track of numbers? No, I gave them to, to Reby. He gave me the film, I exposed it, and then I gave it back to him. He gave me another one to put in. And he, and he gave them to the agent, whoever it was. Well, you were choose between uh, the fact that this was real, that there's an authentic picture, or the fact that it's been phony, and you say it's 
my phase nine of any photograph, not one that I took or that I don't know, I'm sure Mr. Stringer didn't take it. He says, how do you know Mr. Stringer didn't take it? He says, Miss Wilkes almost found us back here. Right. And you know, you remember calling out a piece of scalp or something like that? So, so, you care, I'm going to ask you something like this. Mm-hmm. And, and you actually said, well, I think it's been phony. It's yes, very possible. Very possibly it's been phony. Dressed up or uh, another body used in his place. Well, no, but psychologically, the way you react to it is that it's one of these two possibilities. Right. Because you remember the body. I remember what I saw, and this is not what I saw. Showing is the same one that we saw at the beginning with the hair. With the hair. Okay. Mr. Stringer, were you able to hear Mr. Reeby in the portions of the video that we just uh, watched? Do you believe that Mr. Reeby is inaccurate with regard to his memories from the night of the autopsy? Yes. Mr. Reeby did employ the same term, occipital, that you employed in your conversation with David Lipton. Is that correct? That's correct. And if I said it, yes. Is there a question in your mind about whether you said that to Mr. Whitley? Yes, there is. In what way is there a question in your mind? I don't know why I should have said it if I said it. You also referred to, in the conversation with Mr. Lifton, to the injury on the back of your head, the part that you would lean up against the bathtub, uh, without referring to occipital region. Was that incorrect as well? Yes, it was. And so your understanding also would be that the person who uh, did the reconstruction work on President Kennedy's head, Mr. Robinson, would have been incorrect as well? I don't know about what he... uh, I don't know. I don't... uh, What I saw was the hair down. Once it was was cut down, I mean, pulled back, I don't remember seeing a big hole there. I'd say he was wrong. Thank you for listening to episode 82 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.